0: Hi, and welcome to the Passionistas Project Podcast, where we talk with women who are following their passions to inspire you to do the same. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and today we're talking with Susie Lewis, the Managing Director at Transform for Value and the host of the podcast, Let's Talk Transformation. She's passionate about connecting people, their potential, collective intelligence, and equipping organizations to get the best out of individuals and teams. Her quest is to constantly bridge the gap between digital and human and create more inclusive and collaborative cultures in organizations. So please welcome to the show, Susie Lewis.
1: Hi, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thanks so much, Susie. Thanks for your time today. So what's the one
1: thing you're most passionate about? People. (laughs) I think people and connecting people, which is where the unlocking potential comes from. I worked in an organization for 20 years and I just saw so much wasted potential or untapped potential and I just thought wow we've got to do something about this and I come from a family of very strong women and I'm a big believer in sistership and we've always had each other's backs and I've always had that privilege to have that space and I thought if I don't create it for others I'm missing a trick and I'm not putting myself at the service of creating a more inclusive and equitable world. But I I work mainly in organisations. I'm also a cellist in an orchestra. I have been playing the cello for a very long time, over 30 years. And I love the analogy between the orchestra and what I'm trying to create in society, essentially. Each person comes with their individual potential. But it's essentially about the collective result and how each person contributes to that and how the diversity of profiles and the the diversity of capabilities, how it brings to the fore something completely different that is harmonious, even if the way towards that harmony is not harmonious. (laughs) So I'm passionate about people. I love connecting people and I love playing in orchestra for the same reason. It's about listening intently and deliberately to what's being played, but also what isn't being played. And I think in organizations and in human relationships, it's exactly the same. We listen to reply and not to understand. So my big quest is to democratize access to these dialogue skills and for people to have different conversations and more courageous conversations in the workplace. And I think women bring something innately to that table. So I'm a big believer in the emotional layer of organizational culture and how we unwrap that and make it more normalized in the way people work.
2: So let's take a step back. Tell us about those amazing women from your early life and where you grew up, what your childhood was like.
1: Basically today I'm based in France, but I grew up in UK. And those fabulous women were my mum and my three sisters. And my dad's great as well. (laughs) But uh, we had this safe space and it was predominantly discussion on equity, and how to create different spaces. My parents were both doctors and researchers and also spent a lot of time counselling people. And we've always had these discussions on the table explicitly around healthy, challenging, listening to others, making sure each voice is heard. And my grandma, who is actually my role model for courage and confidence, she was just incredible. And she worked in a time, unfortunately for her, when women didn't have the empowerment they have today. My goodness, if she'd have had the empowerment we have. And she always used to say that to us. Oh, if I had your opportunities, I'd be doing something different, something bigger, something. But she was already big for me. But that was the inspiration. And it ran through the family. And when I did my studies and I started studying cultural identity as well as French and international economics. And I thought, okay, there's something in here about how the world works and there's something in here where I feel I can make a difference with my innate skill set which was I just love discovering people and I just really want to understand what their potential is and what that means for me but also for where we work and how we can scale that if you like across what's happening particularly today in the digital age where what keeps us relevant is our innate human qualities so humility creativity imagination which is where we come to my quest for a different type of leadership in organizations, but also elsewhere. And then I've always been parts of orchestras and charities and associations. And I'm currently part of an association that to get more girls into the tech world and into STEM. And it's it's a big, important piece for me, partly because of what women bring to the table, but just parity in general. Equal opportunities and getting people to have real conversations. Because otherwise we just skirt around these issues and we just don't go there. And I want people, particularly women, to know that it's possible. How many times have people said to me, oh, it's not possible. Oh, you, you can't do that. No, you, you don't have those skill sets. And I've always thought, well, don't tell me it's impossible because it's not. That's always been my driver. And that came from my grandma and my parents and my sisters. And my sisters are my three best friends and we have this great space where we're still helping each other although we're all in different countries and it taught me how to be humble it taught me how to ask for help and it taught me how to think about how I want to show up and I think those questions are fundamental and they don't get asked enough and I just had so much fun I think once you have that type of relationship you can have fun doing really serious quests. And <laughs> Yeah, I found my tribe, if you like. And I decided that building tribes was the way forward. I remember when I moved to France and I was working in France and I thought, this system is really different. I'm finding it quite constrained and quite rigid. So what do I do? I either sit and complain about it or I go back to UK or I think about how I can change it. And I thought, no, that's gonna be my challenge. I'm going to look at how I can change organizational culture and create the space that we work in. I worked in like a manufacturing production environment, very masculine, but I just thought I'm gonna take that as an opportunity. So I'm not gonna sit and think, oh, there's only 17% of women. And I thought, okay, how can I get like-minded people and make this an inclusive discussion and move forward with it? I just found some of what I was seeing so unfair. And I thought, okay, I, if I stay in, if I just don't do anything, I'm condoning it. And I refuse to do that. So I went and found as many people as possible and created small communities within the organization. And we made change. And clearly, you know, large organizations, you can't change everything. But it's very satisfying to watch people have light bulb moments. And then suddenly their potential just explodes. <laughs> and that's just brilliant. And I think, wow, I thought you might do this or I thought you might do that. And they surprise themselves. And I think that's a very satisfying thing to see.
0: Now, is this the industry you're talking about? Is this the aeronautical industry? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about working in that industry. What did you do?
1: It's very interesting. I basically started as a, a lean expert on the supply chain and they trained me in that. And I do like operations and I like doing and I like seeing the impact of what I'm doing. And there's no better way than lean on a production line. <laughs> you see it, you see it coming in, coming off, you see what's happening. But as we started to put in lean in place, I thought, okay, how are we going to lead this? This is quite a different way of of working. And we set up the Lean Leadership Academy and we started looking at all the issues, challenges, but also the opportunities that were coming up from that. And I got more and more involved in the HR system where I was working and I thought, I don't really understand this and I don't think it's unlocking potential. So I went to join HR. (laughs) So I went to join HR to understand what was going on and how I could make a difference and how they worked and what their mindset was. I think the best thing about where I worked was, yes, it's quite a traditional sort of industrial manufacturing environment, and the mindset goes with that, but I never had any issue going and asking for what I wanted. Sometimes they said no, but more often than not, they said, if you're willing to try it and it's your responsibility, then off you go. And maybe I just had great bosses or people who were willing to take a chance on me, but you know, I did have bosses who said no, and then my thought process was, okay, so how else can I make a difference? So, I started as a lean expert and then I went into HR and then I got hooked. I got hooked on why are we only talking about process? What's going on here? Why aren't we talking about the emotional layer? So, I stayed in HR for 10 years. I thought, if I want to change what's going on here, I need to understand it operationally. So, I went into HR operations and I did HR business partnering and I ran the recruitment services and we set up the shared services for recruitment. And during that time, I looked at the recruitment process and the talent we were bringing in and thought this is not very diverse so i said can we do an experiment on diversifying recruitment so that got me thinking about how i could think outside the box and how i could get the organization to think outside the box and then i went in to take on a position as head of diversity inclusion because i thought okay this is a big subject and for me it is the subject for competitive advantage And it's not just a HR tick box exercise and it's not just how many women we've got or how many other minority groups we've got. This is about people. And this is about creating an environment where people can thrive as opposed to strive. And because the culture was quite command and control in terms of leadership, there were quite a lot of people suffering and I could see that. And they couldn't see a way out. And I felt that it was HR's job, but also every leader's job to look into their teams and have that discussion, which of course is quite a big ask because it's a difficult discussion to have. So. I basically took diversity inclusion and said, I want to put it up with strategic objectives, culture change, business objectives, leadership. And then we moved into a time when we wanted to build an internal leadership university. And they asked me if I would like to do that. And I was just thrilled with that project. It was a fab project, but there was four of us running it. So that was a collective management thing. And the more I got into these activities, I thought, one, I have a massive value proposition here. Two. I'm seeing the impact of people co-creating together and seeing what that can do to organizational culture, well-being, but also productivity. And three, organizations are missing a trick if they don't want to look beyond what they do today. So we did that and we basically looked at the whole thing, organizational design, but also how to create a platform for human transformation. What does it mean? How do people learn? How do we interact with the business? How do you support people on the job day in, day out? and how do you equip organizations with a coaching culture a culture of more lifelong learning as opposed to i sit in a, in a classroom for two days and then yeah i did i do remember something they told me about emotional intelligence and how to communicate which is why of course change stalls because they don't practise it they don't practise what i call the human systems of an organization which is you know the human element and now we're in the digital age where everything's about ecosystems i just felt really strongly that if we don't equip people to understand the human systems it's just going to get worse because we can collaborate with online tools and we can have virtual meetings, but the human connection is the way we're wired. So we built the Leadership University and that was one of my favourite, favourite projects ever. And we built communities of practice and we went from 900 members to 12,000. And I was just like, wow, what can we do here? This is so cool. The best thing was there were other people that thought it was so cool, which meant that we got momentum in the organisation. Some people didn't believe in it, but, you know, fair enough. That's humans, isn't it? You don't always get 100% unanimity. But it was great. And I got massively challenged on my ideas and we created new ideas. And I just felt that we unlocked so much potential in the groups we were in that uh, we took it to the talent management and said, you know, what, what do we do with this? And then digital transformation came along and we got more and more tools and more and more speed of change. And then I decided that... I was a bit bored of the big machine and it was too rigid and there were reasons why I couldn't do things that were outside of reasons for my competence. It was either political or it wasn't the right time or budgetary. And so I decided that I would step out of the organisation and do exactly the same thing on my own, because I also wanted to see other organisations, other industries. I wanted to work with charities. I wanted to work with startups. I wanted to work with SMEs. So that's what I did. It's quite a bold move, actually, now I think about it. I probably didn't think about it enough, which is why I just did it. But yeah, so I stepped out of the organization and I set up my own business. And I thought, what do I call it? Transformation was clear. Value was clear. So I thought, okay, well, don't overcomplicate this. I'll just call myself transform for value because that's basically what I want to do. And behind that, it's about unlocking potential. So it's about transforming with a deliberate intention to create human value. That's
2: incredible. While you were there, while you were getting people to think more about diversity and inclusion and while you were creating this university, what was the impact that you saw on the company through those initiatives that you helped create?
1: I think the first impact is always engagement. You have engagement scores and things like that, but you also have people coming to you when you think that's why I do what I do. When people come and say, yeah, I wanted to leave that job, but now I'm staying. Or I never thought that was possible and I never thought I could lead that. And I saw that scale. I saw people getting excited. I saw top management asking more about it. I saw them wanting to understand it. I saw us being able to open doors at levels where I didn't think we would be able to. And I just think that just makes it a more attractive place to work. And you can see people honing in on that. You suddenly find out or people contact you. I hear you're doing this. I've seen you're doing this. I've seen the community does this. And you're thinking, wow, okay, I don't really know who you are, which is brilliant because that's what we're aiming at is to federate and make powerful communities. So I saw a lot of communities being built. I also saw a lot of room to manoeuvre to bring in new ideas, whether that be in the leadership space or in the cultural space. An open box for experimentation, if you like. I think the hardest part about experimentation is when you go from proof of concept to industrialized idea because then it becomes part of the organization and that's almost a different discussion. So I saw the difference in that. I saw the difference in the way I lead and I saw the difference in the way the teams were feeling and innovating and defending the project or taking the project forward. When I was in the operational area, we did a lot of change based on lean on the operations. And I remember after 18 months, we did a retrospective on what's changed. And the biggest change they'd seen was engagement and happiness at the workplace. At the time, we didn't have metrics. We, we had mood boards and things like that, but we didn't have sort of people analytics. But it was incredibly satisfying that that was a collective observation was that even though this didn't work and that didn't work, we actually want to come to work every day, which I just think is just so satisfying. <laughs> And it was interesting. I had somebody contact me a couple of months ago who worked for me 10 years ago and just saying, I still remember that day when the team did that and I'm now doing it with my team and it still really works. So that for me is the type of legacy that I want to leave and I want us to leave as a collective, because I think, you know, particularly platforms like Passionistas and things like that, they are so inspiring and you can unlock so much potential without even knowing it. That's why I'm a big believer in collective intelligence. And I think, these words have become buzzwords now haven't they you know, like collective intelligence and lean and culture change and employee experience but experience is so important because it's the human experience and i think we need to demystify it and we need to operationalize it and that's partly what my podcast is about my podcast is around breaking things down into actionable chunks of learning so that people can go and do something with it and try out what works for them and basically build the confidence to actually challenge the status quo in the organization. And I think emotional intelligence is becoming more and more and more key in the way we work. And I feel that women don't voice that enough, that they innately bring something to that table. I also like to work with groups of women to just turn the volume up on that voice. I think every time I've done that, we're all in agreement. It's just not formalized. The volume isn't loud enough on what women can bring to the table. And it has been ever thus for me. (laughs) But it's getting stronger and it's getting louder. And this was a conversation I had with my mum when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11. And we've been discussing it ever since. So yeah, I, I just think I can add something to that debate. I can make a difference. And however small it may be in society, if I can make it bigger within what I'm doing, then I'm hoping it will just add into the mix. That's why I don't think... It's impossible is the statement I would accept ever. So
0: with Transform for Value, what types of clients do you work with and why are they seeking
1: you out? So I work with large organizations. I also work with governmental institutions. I work with charities and I work with startups, which which is great because I wanted a massive mix of clients. They seek me out because they've understood that something needs to change in their organizational culture. It's either through a digital transformation lens. So we need to be more agile. Our processes need to be more agile. We need to understand innovation, creativity more, or it's from a leadership perspective. We know that we need to change our leadership models because this one is no longer working. So can you help us one, understand what that means and two, co-create it so that we can create sustainable change or they come to me more specifically for coaching. So how can I either show up as a leader differently, or I do quite a lot of systemic coaching in groups around what I call human system practitionering. So, you know, how do I create that environment and how can I make it sustainable in terms of behavioral change in my team or in my organization?
2: Is there like one success story from your work in this field that really kind of stands out to you as one you're particularly moved by or proud of?
1: So yes, it's the answer to that. I think there's one success story from inside the organisation, which is the one I spoke about when we decided that we would federate all the women's networks, which brought it to 900 people, and then we decided we'd make it inclusive. And then we decided we'd call it Balance for Business, to link it to the business, the bottom line. And that went from 900 people to 12,000 in five or six years, and it took on a whole different perception in the organisation, but also a whole different impact in terms of what subjects they were dealing with and how they could create a feeling of belonging across sites and countries. So that was a vision for me. And I saw it unfold, which was fab. That was great. And the Leadership University was also part of that for me, it sort of was contributing, creating a platform underneath to make it more systemic. And very recently, I've been doing some consulting on an inclusion strategy and we've done co-creation from A to Z. And we've gone from discussing strategy and looking at visioning to training all managers in self-limiting beliefs, basic coaching skills and psychological safety. And we've just done the whole spectrum. And it's something I've always wanted to put in place outside of the organization where I've worked. And they gave me that opportunity. And it's a fab project. And every time I think about it fondly, I just think, wow, how many lives are still being impacted by the fact that we're equipping people Different conversations. We're equipping them to thrive, you know, as opposed to survive. And so many people do just survive in organizations. I'm proud of that because it was the right thing to do. And I'm proud of that because I've got the feedback on the impact it's having. And I'm proud of that because it's creating a different culture or building on a culture that wasn't quite as explicit as that on those things in that organization. And I'm interested in a year from now to go back to it and see what <laughs> where they're at.
0: So what are some of the biggest challenges for leaders in the 21st century workplace?
1: So my short answer to that would be themselves. <laughs> Leadership comes from within, doesn't it? And I think particularly now, leaders are having to really understand what they're about in order to be able to deal with the circumstances and lead the uncertainty that's around them. And going inside is, quite a difficult conversation with oneself isn't it and it's not necessarily something that everybody is used to so I think there's that for individual leaders I think then the codes of leadership in an organization are changing very quickly with the paradigm as it shifts so you know the whole I'll give you the information you need and information is power type of paradigm has gone with with social media and collaborative platforms and They're now having to move from a sort of managerial I'll tell you what to do to more of a coaching stance of either let me empower you to take decisions in a more decentralized way because that's the way we're going to organize our organization. Or I am here to develop you based on your competencies and your potential. And that often means developing you out of my team, but but that's okay. So we're moving away from the paradigm of talent is mine because it's in my team, which I think is fabulous because that's what we need to do but I think it's quite a hard conversation to break those paradigms also on a strong leader is a leader that doesn't show vulnerability and that knows everything. So I'm being very black and white there, but we, these are the polarities we're working within. And I think it is hard to turn around and say, I don't know, what do you think? Or I'm not quite sure how to navigate this. I think it's the unwritten codes of organizational cultures around their definition of strong leadership their attitude to failure and risk, and also their attitude to this discussion around the emotional layer. So, challenge doesn't have to be aggressive, it can be healthy in inverted commas. And I just think we're moving from compare and compete to care and collaborate. And that care and collaborate means that you have to have an understanding of yourself, an empathy with the understanding of others, and creating an environment where people feel safe enough in their interpersonal relationships to bring things to the table. So I think from a leadership perspective, that's a shift everybody is working on and undergoing, but it's not the way cultures are. So I I feel like saying it's not the way we do things around here. So they're constantly hitting the cultural codes. And that's quite a tiring place if you're one of the only ones doing it. So I think it's a wider discussion for particularly top leadership, because what do people do when they want to know what's going to be rewarded and how things work? They look at the top. I think it's a big piece for top leadership. And that's why we need more women in the higher levels of management, as well as the board level, because they bring that discussion. They open that dialogue because they have very different ways of leading and not just women, but people with more female leadership traits or with a more developed uh, emotional intelligence. And I just think we're back on the inhibitors of learning, aren't we? Ego and fear. And everyone always says to me, there's a lot of fear in organisations and there is, but there is a lot of courage as well. (laughs) There's a lot of curiosity And there's a lot of excitement, but you have to go and find it. And I think that's the most exciting thing is going and finding it in an organization or anywhere else. But I think the leadership challenge is that they have to deliver in a world that is uncertain, that they're not that comfortable in, and they're not quite sure how to go about it. It's it's a big shift, I think, the circular models and the the sort of what data brings with it in terms of decision making is, is a big conversation, both for systems and organizations, but also as individual leaders, I get a lot of individual leaders asking me the question, you know, I'm not quite sure what to do with the fact that I don't know. So that's new conversations for quite a lot of people.
2: And do you find that more and more companies or individuals are seeking to make these changes?
1: So so yes, is the answer to that, but I think there are two categories. The companies that are seeking because they actively and deliberately want to create developmental organizations because that's what they believe in and that's what they want to do. And other companies, because they've been told that that's what they need to do to remain competitive. Either way they need to do it, (laughs) it's it's a very different uh, discussion.
0: So how can people work with you at Transform for Value? How do they find you and what can they expect when they work with you?
1: They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me through my website, transformforvalue.com. They can find me on Twitter. They can expect a first discussion because my approach to transformation is holistic. and. It has to have that systemic view to it even if it's just an in inverted commas a two-day workshop the discussion will always start with what's the strategy what are the objectives and where does it fit in and i do that on purpose because i'm a big believer in systems thinking it comes with the sort of collective intelligence thing and i do think that particularly in today's world systems thinking and sense making is key for leadership to come back to your earlier question so i will always have that discussion And they'll also get honesty. If I don't think I can help them, I'm going to tell them. (laughs) Because, you know, I do what I do to make a difference. If I don't think I can make a difference, then I will tell them I, I don't think I'm the one for them. But I will refer them to people I know. But that's important for me. So it's about a holistic discussion. It's about a fit between me and them. If I can't help them, I'll tell them. And I will always be honest about what I think they need, even if it's not what they came to me for. So I think that's important for me that that we work within those boundaries and then hopefully they'll have fun when we do stuff together.
2: (laughs) Shifting gears a little bit, tell us about the cello and when you first started to play and why you fell in love with it and why you're in the orchestra.
1: Yeah, the cello. I think I was 10 and they came around the schools with all these instruments and they said it was a discovery day and I heard the person play the cello and I heard the sound of the cello and I was just like, I want to play that. I want to do that. I was a little bit bewitched by the sound of it. And I thought, wow, I didn't realize how difficult it would be to recreate that sound. But I just fell in love with it. And I thought, this is for me. I really love this instrument. So I asked my parents if I could play and they said, yeah, we'll hire one though. I said, okay. And my granddad was a pianist. So we had music in the household and uh, all my sisters played instruments as well. And it was hard. I found it quite hard to learn to play and there's quite a lot of discipline and I was like, do I really want to do this? And, And then I started thinking, okay, well, I'll join an orchestra because that would be really cool to play with other people. So I joined an orchestra when I was about 12, a youth orchestra, and I just, that was it then. Because I think I'd taken the pressure off myself to perform and to get it right. And it was just like, wow, I'm part of something bigger. And I think being part of something bigger than yourself for me very inspiring, hence what I do and and all the communities that we create. So that's what I did and I just learned so much about people and I had so much fun just being part of a bigger collective and playing and watching myself progress and then I was quite willing to do my scales and and, uh, do the practice and we went on tour with the orchestras and my sister was in the same orchestra and yeah it was a big collective thing and then when I was 16 I bought my own cello which was like this big thing for, It's like, I wow, I've bought my own cello and I bought it in a sort of market near where we were that was selling old instruments and a guy I knew helped me tune it and put it together and I was just like wow I've bought an instrument so that was a big thing for me and then it's just stayed with me ever since when I went to university I found an orchestra and when I came to Toulouse I found an orchestra and I still play in that orchestra and I've always played that and I love I just love cello music I think it just communicates an emotional sort of bewitchment that, that I don't feel when I play I really like playing it and it sort of takes me elsewhere it's, it's a little bit like mindfulness for me I just sort of step out of what I'm doing during the day and then when my grandma passed away I bought a more expensive cello with the inheritance. So that was symbolic for me because she accompanied me in my cello exam. She came to play the piano with me and we did them together. So that was very cool. And yeah, that's just my instrument. I just feel something passionate when I hear the cello.
0: So we also love the sister connection. Obviously we're sisters and we have two other sisters and we are also each other's best friends. What do you sisters do? And how often do you get to see them since you all live in different countries?
1: Let's take COVID out of this. Before that, we saw each other about four or five times a year, but we would always take the time to have one weekend for just the four of us dedicated to us. to so you just having fun and being together and that sistership thing. So that's how much we see each other. One is a lawyer, one is a translator, and one is a communications director. And we're just sort of all over the world, but we're always connected you know, oh, I must ring her and it just so happens that she's okay or she's not okay. But they're my go-to place for constructive and sisterly feedback that will help move me on, whether it's what I want to hear or not. They're sort of my muses, if you like. It's funny because, you know, when we all started sort of moving away and getting other groups of friends, I never once asked myself, I wonder if that space will remain. You know, it just wasn't, and we've had this discussion between all four of us and it wasn't on anybody's radar. It was just like, Oh, how are we going to make space for that? Not would it change? not would... So I feel very, very, very privileged all the time. I'm just so grateful for, for that because it's a no matter what unconditional safe space. And that's what really inspires me as well to create that for other people because it's so powerful.
2: People don't understand if they haven't experienced it, but to know, to know from birth that you've got people that have your back no matter what is really the greatest gift anybody could could receive.
1: It, yeah, it's a fab feeling. It's a get up and feel good feeling. And I just think you can recreate that in teams. You can recreate that in organizational culture. And it's such a shame not to because it's so inspiring for everybody and they don't have to be inspired by the same thing or motivated by the same thing, but they all want to work together. And clearly, if you're in an organization, you will have a collective purpose or vision depending on what the organization does and I just think it's one of those things I spend a lot of time doing pro bono stuff on this topic just because it's so important I mentor everyone but predominantly women on building their own business we go into colleges before they've made their choices and it's not just about getting women into areas where they aren't it's also about believing yourself build your confidence don't let anyone tell you it's impossible surround yourself with people who can help you who can have that space with you Because I don't think I would be the same person I am today if I hadn't have had that space.
2: So what do you think is your best habit?
1: I think my best habit is yoga when I get up. And even if it's just five minutes, even if it's just a downward dog, it's not just the yoga bit. It's the centering of my day. I always center my day and I always put myself an objective for business and an objective for gratitude, and I, I do that every morning. And I used to document it, and now I don't because it's become a reflex. But I think I think that's my best habit. And laughing—if I really, really can't get over myself, or it's been a hard week—I will go out with all my friends or my husband and just laugh. I just think it's a great tonic, <laughs> and you know, I make time for that.
0: Is there a particular personality trait that you think has helped you succeed?
1: I think empathy. I think empathy and also resilience. I'm quite a driven person, quite disciplined and I've always had quite a lot of resilience and I think that's come from being built up by this space where, you know, we all have quite a lot of resilience and I think when you know someone's got your back, you can just build your resilience in a way that's a little bit smoother and empathy and that stems also from education but also I think innately I just... Read people quite well, and I like reading people, and I'm very careful what I do with that information. But I think I couldn't do my job today if I didn't have that skill. Clearly, I've honed it and learned stuff about it, but I've always had it.
2: What's been the most rewarding part of your career so far?
1: I think the most rewarding part of my career has been becoming a leader. When I had my first big team of like 90, 100 people, I was just like, wow, this is where I can see the impact, where I can feel the impact, this feels bigger than me. And so I decided on that reflection that I would do projects that required big teams. And it's not necessarily about having everyone report into you, it's just about having that feeling of belonging in that community of moving something massive forward. So I always took on big teams and big projects, big in ambition and big in sort of volume and and sort of global reach. And I think that's been the most rewarding thing. And it has brought itself to being in building the Leadership University, in building my own business. That's been incredibly hard, but incredibly enriching and rewarding in terms of growth. And now I look back at it because hindsight is a wonderful thing. Is I'm proud, I'm proud. And it's incredibly rewarding to see what you can do with your own ideas where people said to you, it's not possible.
0: What's your dream for women?
1: I think my dream for women is for them to be empowered enough for us not to have these discussions around stereotypes or for us to have to mention when a woman is head of state or when a woman is on the board. It shouldn't be a sort of a discussion of, oh, great, we've got another woman head of state. You know, that should be the status quo is It should be gender parity, and that's the first thing. The second thing is my dream for women is for society to condition them less into the way they should think, feel, and act. You know, I'm a big fan of Kristin Neff's work on self-compassion, fierce and tender self-compassion, and if you mix that with the work on data from Invisible Women, this book around data, and the fact that systems are designed by men for men, with men. It's not a a judgment, it's just a statement. And that's the way the world has been. I think we can change that. (laughs) And I think data gives us the power and data insight gives us the power to change that. I think the hardest hurdle is getting over the human reaction to that. So let's break the stereotypes in our brains. So now I'm talking about mental models of particularly men in in powerful positions. So the day when we don't have to tell me how great it is to put a woman where I think she should already be, That's my dream for women is that they don't have to have that fight. They don't have to face these stereotypes because I think everyone faces their own inner critics. They don't need external stereotypes. That's my dream for women. And if I can be instrumental in that, which I hope I am being, that's also why I do what I do.
2: What's your secret to a rewarding life?
1: I think it's balance, although I've struggled with balance for quite some time in terms of what brings you joy and how much leeway do you give yourself, particularly when you're owning your own business. How much pressure do you take off yourself so that you can have those moments with your family, with yourself and also for creativity. When I first started, I put a day in my diary, a creativity day. I have to be creative because it's creativity day and I have to do strategy on that day. And I just learned to let go a little bit of the pressure I was putting on myself and that's become a deliberate practice through mindfulness as I was saying before but also through understanding my inner systems of how the internal narratives that are running me and how that works and and I've been sharing those which is quite a vulnerable (laughs) step but I decided if I don't take that step I won't be able to constantly have that balance it will just be when I'm not tired and the issue is when people are tired that's when you revert to type of course or stress. It's it's an ongoing discussion with yourself. And I think it's also having the courage to share that. I didn't for a very long time. And when I did, I thought, why have I not done this before? Even though it's uncomfortable, that's, that's so valuable.
0: Do you have a mantra you live by?
1: Don't let anyone tell you it's impossible. It's not, <laughs> that's my mantra. And I will always question someone who says to me, yeah, that's not possible. I heard it a lot in the organisation I was working in and not necessarily, it's just, no, you can't do that. Why not? You don't have the skills. Okay, I think I do. I also live by another mantra, which is never look back unless it's to learn something from what you've done. Because I think we can spend too much time in the what ifs and I should have. and, And, you know, I did take that out of my vocabulary deliberately. What if and I should have. And I check myself every time. That isn't where the future is behind me.
2: What's your definition of success?
1: My definition of success is being in that space where you feel fulfilled because you're getting fulfillment from what you do all over the place, professionally, personally. But also, I think success for me is watching other people rise, watching the potential unlock itself. And, you know, when you get those little messages of you've changed my life, that's a big statement. But the feeling behind that is, yeah, that's why I do what I do. That for me is success, is getting up and feeling like I've made a difference to something that's bigger than me.
0: What advice would you give to a young woman who wants
1: to follow her passions? <laughs> the first one would be, don't let anyone tell you it's impossible. <laughs> but I, And I think, you know, get bold. So have a look at what you want to do and how you can get there and reach out as early as possible. So many times people said to me, I'd have helped you through that. I'd have mentored you through that. I've been through that. I had no idea because I just never asked for help. Partly, because I was too busy, but I think it was more than that. I, I just didn't go and ask for help because I felt that it was a weakness. Take stock of what you want to do and really take stock of it because you're going to spend most of your life there. And go and find people who will help you do it because there's always enough people to tell you that it's not possible or that that's going to be difficult. Really seek out people who can help you and who are willing to pay it forward especially with platforms now there are lots of communities that you can have access to that you couldn't access before because they weren't online and just ask people if they can put you in contact with people and find people who will support you on that journey because I don't think in in education the discussion is always open enough in terms of depending on what your passion is and there is still bias in those discussions and those systems so I would go and find as many different people as possible to ask the question to
2: One last question for fun. If you could choose one female pop culture icon or a woman in history and walk in her shoes for one day. Who would you choose and why?
1: The woman I would choose is Maya Angelou. I just think she's fabulous. I just think she's there's so much wisdom and it's still ringing true today. What I think it's about, which is people will never forget how you made them feel. And she's a sort of mantra in, in my life for that. I just think she, it's spot on.